0: We know the Turks well. They give their soul, but not their secrets. I have ways to make them talk.
1: What ways?
0: That well is full of deadly snakes. Down there, even a mute will sing like a bird.
1: Nice one.
0: Welcome to the magic lantern podcast an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them i am erica long
1: and i am cole Rowling. each episode of the magic lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us just a note whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers
0: we are at episode 120, and that is the last choice for Cole of the year. What did you come up with?
1: I chose the movie that answers the musical question, who wears short shorts? And that answer is everyone. <laughs> and we're talking about Tarzan versus the Vikings from we 1971. Sure and that's directed by Mehmet Aslan and starring Kartal Tibet, Ava Bender, Seher Sanez, Bilal Inchi, and Fatma Belgen. It's based on a series of adventure comics by Sezgin Barak, and it is about a Turk Hun warrior and his wolf companions who are on a mission to protect Attila the Hun's daughter when they are ambushed by Viking hordes and left for dead. What follows is an epic adventure of revenge for his good pup, and if he has time, maybe, to also rescue Attila's daughter from certain doom.
0: I'm sure we'll have plenty of chances of mentioning that really Kurt, the wolf, is the true hero of this story. Oh, yeah,
1: he is the true MVP. We will definitely cover that. But typically, you know, we get right to the film itself, but I think this episode will be a little different. I want to talk a little bit first about a couple of things. Turkish cinema of the period and Mondo Macabro, the label that released this on home video. I think a crash course in both of those would help frame the conversation a little bit better for folks who might not be as familiar with it. So, Turkish cinema... The Turkish film industry, it was kind of a late bloomer. Pre-World War II, the overwhelming majority of films that were shown in Turkey were imports. Just to give you an idea, in 1952, there were 49 films made in Turkey. That seems like a fairly low number. Now add to that the fact that that number was more than the previous output of all prior years in Turkey combined. They made up for a lost time in the 60s and 70s, though. That was the real boom period for Turkish popular cinema. And that's also the time period that saw the production of the Tarkan series, one of which we're talking about today.
0: During the 60s, Turkey actually became the fifth biggest film producer worldwide. And that's about 300 films annually. I can't even fathom that at this point.
1: Another of our favorites, Dry Summer, is from that era. Dry Summer being a more arthouse choice, though. And it's a different proposition altogether from what I mean when I say Turkish popular cinema.
0: And keep in mind, Dry Summer, it won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival in 1964. We mentioned it in one of our Ants episodes.
1: It's really fascinating that time period to me because there weren't the divisions that we think of in the US now between art house and grindhouse. It wasn't the way we imagine Hollywood versus the American Underground, for instance. All of that stuff, it came out of the same system. The same filmmakers and actors did all of it. Errol Toss, who was in Dry Summer, is also in The Deathless Devil.
0: Playing the super villain. Well, he plays a supervillain in both, but drastically different characters. Yeah.
1: Exactly. That film, The Deathless Devil, is the other half of this bananas double feature DVD that Tarkin versus the Vikings is part of. Something else that also fueled this boom period was the fact that Turkey did not recognize any international copyright law, which made it a really quick and easy process to take extremely popular international properties and crank out these lookalike films. There are Turkish versions of Rocky, Rambo, The Wizard of Oz, The Exorcist, An especially egregious case is the Turkish Star Wars, which goes by the title The Man Who Saved the World, which actually used unauthorized footage from the real Star Wars in it.
0: Just thrown in there, wherever they felt like. Astounding. What's the Turkish word for chutzpah? I don't know. I'll have to look it up.
1: Yeah, they just had a completely different view of these things. Censorship boards did not take those sort of infringements into account. They may say, tone down this religious reference, But no one ever said, hey, this fight scene, it has the theme from Jaws in it. You can't do that. (laughs) So often when describing Turkish cinema, you can easily swap out the adjective best with most brazen a lot of the time. Even more incredible, the same three guys, it seems like, wrote practically everything. Sadiq Sindil. The screenwriter of Tarkin vs. the Vikings has 187 writing credits to his name on IMDb. I
0: cannot even imagine. And he's a
1: lightweight when you look at some of the yeah. others. Bulent Duran has 317. <laughs> Safa God Onal Lord. has 348.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: It was the Wild West, it seems like. And it resulted in a lot of hastily produced, but two-fisted, over-the-top action and adventure designed for mass appeal. There was plenty of sex, too, increasingly so as the years went on. You could probably do a really incredible case study on Turkey and how the cultural repression of sexual impulses affects those depictions in the cinema. And then, of course, there was plenty of violence. It was true pulp cinema with little regard for anything except trying to get the most entertaining product on screen as quickly as possible. And it was great while it lasted, but by the beginning of the 80s, The popularity of these films began to wane and competition with television was a growing obstacle. That's a big enough shame as it is, but not only did they fall off in popularity, they just began to disappear altogether, mainly through neglect. With Turkish cinema at the time, if you run down a list of priorities, film preservation is way at the bottom.
0: Just imagine if you turn around and this thing that you remembered from childhood, let's say The Sound of Music suddenly doesn't exist a generation later.
1: Yeah, just like any time that happens, it breaks my heart a little bit to think about what was lost. It's just another reminder that in the U.S., it's easy for us to take our film industry for granted. A lot of good times at the movies from this period in Turkey are in landfills, decaying in canisters somewhere, or were just scavenged for the silver in the film stock. So as a result, I've only been able to see the smallest handful of these films.
0: So that's definitely a downer to watch those ticket sales decline from the peak of 90 million tickets sold in 1966 down to just 11 million in 1990. And in the 90s, they were only making about 15 films a year. Happily, though, that seems to have rebounded. Way more films being produced, the number of theaters increasing to about 500 nationwide, which is great and locally made films being able to be seen again locally, and also internationally. For example, in the 2000s, there was Uzak, which won the Grand Prix at Cannes, and then many other acclaimed films coming afterwards.
1: Again, including some of our favorites, One of These Days, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, is going to end up as a regular episode on this show too.
0: Do you think they're going to reboot the Tarkhan series? Oh,
1: God, that would be great. <laughs> as long as they do it just like it was.
0: Absolutely. Don't make any changes. Don't get a bigger budget. Just keep it the same.
1: Well, one of the reasons that we have some of these titles that are available to us is because of the efforts of companies like Mondo Macabro, hands down one of our favorite DVD labels, bringing us the wild side of world cinema on home video for almost 20 years now. It didn't start as a DVD distributor, though. This story starts in publishing and television before we get to that. In 1994, Pete Toombs co-wrote a book with Cathal Tohill called Immoral Tales, which was a guide to Euro-horror and exploitation, another subject that's dear to our hearts. And then that led to a producing gig with Andy Stark on a BBC series called Eurotica. After that came a second book called Mondo Macabro, Weird and Wonderful Cinema Around the World, and it covered... Some of the more out there films from a lot of neglected regions, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Turkey, among others. And you can look at that book as kind of a blueprint as to what to expect from the label itself. Pete Toomes' books are a must for anyone who swears by stuff like the Psychotronic Video Guide or Danny Peary's Guide for the Film Fanatic. If you're a fan of those and you don't have Pete Toombs' books, you will be glad when you eventually track them down. His Mondo book, that led to another UK TV series. And then finally, he and Stark started releasing DVDs in the US under that banner in 2003 with Alucarda. Now, I said earlier that this is one of our favorite labels. I can't think of a label that I have a higher degree of faith in a blind buy from. That includes Criterion, that includes anybody. We've never received a Mondo Macabro order and thought, well, that wasn't worth the time. I don't want to speak for you, though. What are your impressions of Mondo Macabro in general? Are you typically excited when I tell you about the title announcements that are coming, for instance?
0: Absolutely. I expect to discover something from some corner of the world in some insane story that's been created by a visionary from that region. A story that could only come from that person that I could never really fathom how in the world is this going to end i will say you mentioned criterion and i think the only difference in those two labels if you give me two choices i think i'm probably going to have a little bit more of a tingly exciting time with mondo than i might with criterion no offense to anyone
1: well how would you describe their aesthetic to someone who has never seen one of these films and how well do you feel like they fulfill their mission statement basically and preserve their focus on these type of films
0: So you know that I'm not a collector, and I didn't really know the label. I don't tend to associate things in that way, thinking, oh, all of these things that I love come from here. I also don't save cases and boxes. I know clearly I'm not allowed to do anything like that anymore, but I would never probably notice the label.
1: If you did pay attention to the cases, you are noticing that signature red case. Anytime we see one of those, we know we're getting something good.
0: And you know, the artwork's going to be awesome. So I expect to be either appalled or amazed (laughs) or excited (laughs) or weirdly titillated in a way that I had never experienced before or shocked or just entertained, never bored. And just personally speaking for me, the chance that I get to see something from, as you mentioned, Indonesia or the Philippines, I don't have access in the same way, just as this regular person who doesn't tend to be a movie archaeologist in the way that some people are. I don't have access to those things. And Mondo brings me every corner of the world.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think they do the best job among all of the boutique labels operating on this level. And this is not to take anything away from labels like Severin or Vinegar Syndrome. They are doing the Lord's work and we love them too. Mondo Macabro though seems laser focused on scouring the globe for these cult titles that are perfectly in their wheelhouse. And even when they do seem to stray from their usual, we put that movie in the player and it ends up at the top of our list of favorites of all time.
0: I said to you just the other night, As I often do, I'm looking for something, I want to watch something, here's the mood that I'm in. And the mood that I was in was, I want something really weird, and I also want it to be pretty exciting. And you said, okay, well, what Mondo title should we go to? And whenever you give me those announcements of the coming titles, the titles may not mean anything to me, but the description sure is going to grab me.
1: Yeah, you pretty much can't go wrong with anything in the catalog. But let's move it back to tarkan for a bit. And then at the end, we'll each come back with our top five Mondo macabre releases. Tarkin versus the Vikings is just an excellent example of all that is good about that period in Turkish cinema. Bear in mind, I say that very subjectively, obviously. It may be an acquired taste for some people.
0: If you like no pants and manspreading <laughs> and axes, it's right up your alley.
1: I really do like all the traditions that this draws upon. It's very Saturday matinee, and you can see its ties to serials of the 30s and 40s, both in the costumes and the fact that its structure essentially functions as a series of cliffhangers. It has those comic book roots. It's full of high adventure. Think fantasy and action elements in a low-budget vein, but with touchstones ranging from everything from The Thief of Baghdad, both versions, 1924 and nineteen forty to Jason and the Argonauts. I'm just sorry that this is the only one of them that I've been able to see. There's a channel on YouTube that has a number of them, but no English subtitles, unfortunately. There are five of them in the series proper. This is the third. And then three more followed with a different lead actor, including one made without the rights to the character. (laughs) Classic Turkish cinema move. (laughs) And they're just so clever with how they use their resources right away to expand the sense of scale. We see it in this intro in this first battle set piece. Horses are expensive, obviously. Sound effects are cheap. So these five horses sound like 500. Just keep the camera close, shoot a lot of different angles to make some dynamic cuts. And then it's the same with the soldiers. It's the Tammany Hall approach to voting put into filmmaking, basically. Put a different hat on this guy and then put him back in line
0: red wig over here, blonde wig over here, throw some women in the fighting forces. It's all excitement. And this is really go for broke pacing just right away.
1: Tarkan, on the other hand, he doesn't need those kind of tricks. He is a one man army. All he needs are these poses that he strikes and his pups. He is accompanied by a pair of what he refers to as wolves, both named Kurt and they are father and son. And
0: by the way, Kurt is the Turkish word for wolf, and I think they're actually German shepherds. Yeah, they are much
1: more more like German (laughs) shepherds, but close enough because they stand nobly by every time that he puts his hands on his hips and thrusts his chest out. They are super cool.
0: Okay, I have to say here, Tarkan himself was a little bit of a letdown. Maybe that's just because the two Kurts are so awesome.
1: It's hard not to be overshadowed by these dogs, because we're dog people, obviously. But he's really somewhat of a Conan the Barbarian type, mixed with some of that Lone Ranger slash man with no name vibe. Think Turkish Norman Reedus.
0: I was thinking a little bit more David Carradine, because he kind of stands by sometimes and lets other people do some work for him.
1: (laughs) Well, every culture and time period seems to have an equivalent, you'll pick up hints here of everything from The Wandering Ronin to James Bond. But back to this battle scene, though. Not only were there no rules with regard to copyright, prepared to have your expectations just blown away on this battlefield, too.
0: Every single one of my notes ends with an exclamation point.
1: (laughs) Yeah, mine too. For instance, this Viking just axed a baby and threw it.
0: Not just a baby, a toddler, and (laughs) then does a baby.
1: The dogs get in on the action, and one of them is speared. Tarkin gets off the deck with arrows in his back to get to his fallen pup. It's really proto-John Wick.
0: And Kurt, the sun wolf, gets that vengeance quick cut, because we know he has seen who has killed his father, and he's now on a mission.
1: Yeah, the dog plays a significant role in the film, sometimes in ways that you can't believe you are seeing When the elder Kurt meets his maker, Kurt the Younger gets his close-up, Mr. DeMille, so we can see that he is literally crying huge wolf tears.
0: Possibly the greatest moment I had that week.
1: (laughs) And he repeatedly comes to the rescue. He's jumping into melees. He somehow scales a vertical rock wall. And then he takes on a huge octopus. Does it matter that he often looks completely disinterested in what is happening on screen? The dubbing of the dog sounds do not match what is happening, or that he is just looking off in the wrong direction. No, it does not. He is a heroic boy.
0: Thank God, because Tarkan is just waiting around to heal while all of this stuff is happening and women are getting tortured all over the place.
1: Just a quick note about the music. Before this, did you know that Ennio Morricone scored a Turkish swordplay epic? No. Neither did he. <laughs> Seriously, though. <laughs> (laughs) This exposes me maybe more than it does the creators of the movie. Maybe you're the same as me. Let's see. For example, if a movie came out next year that blatantly played pieces of the score for, say, The Irishman over its fight scenes, you probably wouldn't think that highly of that movie, right? But in Tarkin vs. The Vikings, I'm surprisingly okay with it. And the same thing for 70s kung fu films. It happens all the time in those. Is your response similar to mine somehow?
0: Yeah. You know why? Because they pick great music (laughs) and it works in any movie that it's used in. And I love that moment in the mini documentary that we watched about Turkish cinema that Mondo had done. One of the young people in the film, who's now a DJ, said, watching these films, all of this music was just in our consciousness. And I'm thinking, of course it was. It was in the whole worlds because they chose music from really popular films.
1: Now, our bad guy here, General Toro, he makes for an excellent outsized antagonist of that melodramatic type, the twirling of the mustache type. He tempts the gods, declaring himself mightier than Odin, He spends plenty of time in the bath with Turkish Miss Dr. Pepper Boat Show. (laughs) He does some really over-the-top villainous things like killing his nemesis' father, drinking from his skull, and then throwing it at our feet. These Vikings are ruthless. And to obtain that skull, Toro threw the previous king to the sea monster that they keep on hand just for dispatching enemies.
0: Now, the creators have put a lot of personality in the sea monster's eyes. I think it is operated by maybe a bicycle pump, but it is still awesome.
1: I have to say that you fill up our inflatable mattress faster than this octopus (laughs) gets deployed sometimes. To get an idea of the octopus, think of Bela Lugosi at the end of Bride of the Monster, if you've seen him wrestling with that briefly, just on a more grand scale. And if you think that this is something that you don't think would reward repeat viewings, only this time did I catch that the king's head, hands, and feet are still attached to this frame, chained to the framework, as the octopus recedes into the sea, having just pulled the middle out of him.
0: Yeah, you had to rewind it for me because I missed it.
1: They attempt to execute Ursula, the king's daughter, and then Tarkin the same way, but it's a good thing that the Vikings conveniently never stick around to see that the monster finishes its job.
0: They hire the best people and expect them to do their jobs.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Because they do have things to do, which reminds me, the pace of this film is fantastic. It does what it's supposed to do, and the energy level never flags. They manage to get in all sorts of action and tortures and cliffhanger devices. Did you have particular favorite elements in this parade of madness?
0: I like the use of deadly poisons. That's always going to be fun. This was really probably only missing quicksand to tick all of those boxes. Sea monsters and hanging from chandeliers and rope swings and lots of murder and crossing the ocean a few times and all kinds of crazy stuff. But I think it really gets going when they finally are onto their revenge. There are just
1: so many that it's never boring. And the ingenuity and their willingness to push the boundaries results in some pretty arresting and unique imagery, I think. Being dangled over a pit of snakes by your braids, that gets your attention. You mentioned that classic Errol Flynn-style swashbuckling, but in this case it just adds backflips and decapitations to the mix. Then there's this crazy-ass Viking party that segues into a full-blown Donnybrook. The One-Eyed Viking, he is the best in the whole joint at throwing axes, which made me completely rethink everything I thought I knew about depth perception. And, like you mentioned, the Chinese contingent employs that classic Lucretia Borgia poison ring and then poison darts. It has something for everyone. Thank
0: goodness Kurt is a poison-sniffing dog. Here's the only music cue it was missing. The only thing they didn't steal was the Pink Panther theme <laughs> when Curtis sneaking around. That would have been the best.
1: Well, in addition to their ingenuity and commitment to getting all of this energy and action on the screen, I really appreciate something like that. Their devotion to squeezing every last dime out of the budget, legal or not, depending on your jurisdiction... That rowing set that they built and this inflatable octopus, they are not going to let any of that go to waste. They get so much fun and excitement out of this premise, this budget, these stunts. I hope that a U.S. audience can appreciate it, and not just on an ironic level. It's certainly not like we were knocking this sort of stuff out of the park in this same vein at that time. If you compare our early comic book adaptations, something like Captain America with Reb Brown. This holds up incredibly well next to that.
0: Yes, we're definitely not smirking here. This is a great time. It is so much fun. And to me, it's way more fun than the majority of the current Marvel films. And for me, I think about two really important touchstones from my childhood, and that was the Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk TV shows. Those were a huge deal to me as a kid, Wonder Woman was on from 1975 to 1979. I really got to watch it in syndication in the 80s. The Hulk, I watched every single week from 1978 to 1982. Wonder Woman, I wanted to be. The Hulk is probably who I was. (laughs) He didn't want to see me when I was angry. And it also had so much pathos for me. It terrified and saddened me that Reporter was constantly dogging David Banner. So if I had seen Tarkan as a kid, I would have wanted to roam the countryside with a wolf righting wrongs as well.
1: Yeah, I think the way that it holds up has a lot to do with that boldness and that simplicity that you're talking about and the fact that it certainly didn't take itself too seriously. And speaking of Captain America a little bit, aside from the lure of this action adventure, you can certainly see in Turkey the nationalistic appeal of this too. He is a super Turk, and that must have tapped into a certain sense of pride with this ideal historic avatar of your culture. Because I picture kids all over Turkey, if they were anything like me, playing in vacant lots, fashioning these makeshift swords, arguing over who gets to be Tarkan, and obviously it's the kid with the coolest dog.
0: And the word Tarkan is a title in Turkic and Mongolian nobility. It's used in the Turkic language and has been for a millennia before the comic book series even came out. But because that series was such a success, it then became a popular given name in Turkey. And personally, I don't know enough about the Huns, so this sent me on a little bit of an odyssey. It's really fascinating. Because Tarkin, the character, was a Hunnic warrior. His folklore is that as an infant, he was orphaned in a raid and raised by wolves. And this process made him... Powerful and courageous, and then he became a warrior in the service of Attila the Hun. They do play a little bit fast and loose with history in general. Yeah, you
1: think so? Not a problem. In the episode, maybe where he meets vampires?
0: (laughs) Probably. Because Attila the Hun lived from about 406 to 453, and the Vikings were generally known to be raiding from about 790 to 1066.
1: So the Vikings we see in this picture are just early adopters. I guess
0: so. Though, very interestingly enough, at the Hagia Sophia, that incredibly amazing cathedral in Constantinople, there is a carving in a parapet that reads, Half was here. Half being the name of a Viking mercenary.
1: These kids and their tags.
0: There's always got to be one, right?
1: It's not uncommon, though, for kids of any generation, any place in time, for their heads to be full of that kind of lore, though. I know mine was. Did you have a similar thing? Did you read stories about Vikings or Crusaders or even Robin Hood, for that matter?
0: I got really into Greek myths. Mm -hmm. That was so exciting to me as a kid.
1: Yeah, so we're all carrying this stuff around in our heads, whether it's 1982, whether it's 2019, whether it's 453, all of that energy we're taking into this movie And for something that feels mostly like a Saturday afternoon cereal or matinee, some of these things are kind of incongruous. The bursts of violence and nudity can be a little bit surprising. It feels like it's made for kids. It's adolescent sort of in its text and focus. But what ends up on the screen is not necessarily kid stuff. The appeal of this is definitely rooted primarily in what most would consider a young boy's Adventure story sensibility to play sword fight with a cool cape and an eye patch, maybe even a falcon. Does any of that impede your enjoyment of the film if you didn't necessarily have that style of play when you were young?
0: Absolutely not. And I didn't have a ton of that style of play. I was way more into mysteries and thinking I was one of the Scooby Doo gang. So I wasn't playing sea monsters, but this is so incredibly interesting and exciting. And I can also appreciate the things that don't work as well for me, like Tarkan being a bit of a puss. But instead, we've got Kurt saving the day right and left.
1: It's also got some strange contrasts in it. It seems to be regressive at some points and then progressive at the same time. There is certainly this aspect of sexploitation and gratuitous nudity But you also have that boatload of Valkyries coming to the rescue that prove to be every bit the fighters that their male counterparts are, and then some. And this film is upskirt city, but that applies as much to the men as it does the women.
0: Oh, heck yeah. No pants, as I mentioned earlier, on anyone.
1: So it's probably not a movie for everyone, but it should be, I feel like. It's great with a group of friends. It's even better with the right audience in a theater. To even press play, you have to accept the fact that these Turks will be playing Norsemen, and after that, why fight it? I love it for its limitations, and even more for its complete disregard for those limitations. There really is nothing ironic or winking about the affection I have for this film. It is wall-to-wall fun.
0: I'm right there with you, and I came up with a drive-in breakdown Of this movie in an homage to Joe Bob Briggs, because I think this would have been a great U.S. drive-in movie. So here's the rundown. We've got music stolen without credit or royalties from around the world, including Alzo Sprach Zarathustra. We've got two awesome dogs who, let's face it, do all the work. We've got drum-foo, (laughs) whip-foo, axe-foo, sword-foo, German Shepherd-foo, chandelier-foo, sea-monster-foo, falcon-foo lots of Captain Morgan poses, and upwards of five breasts exposed.
1: Yeah, I think I said it has something for everyone. (laughs) But we'll take Tarkan out of the running right now, as this is obviously one of our favorites. Aside from this one, what are your top five Mondo Macabro releases?
0: I want to say first thank you to you, Cole, because I wouldn't have seen any of these without you. I'm going to start with number five for me, and that is... French Sex Murders from 1972, (laughs) the greatest title. virtually the film doesn't quite live up to the title. Now, it was directed by Ferdinando Morigi and stars Anita Ekberg, Rosalba Neri, and Eveline Kraft. It's about the assassination of a prostitute in a French brothel and the subsequent murders of the witnesses to the crime. Now, I think it's notable for being... Generally a little on the boring side, except...
1: There's one moment that I know you chose this for.
0: It's the stabbing scene on the staircase that must be seen to be believed.
1: There's also a low-rent Humphrey Bogart that runs throughout (laughs) that you also have to see.
0: It's odd. Okay, your number five.
1: My number five is The Queen of Black Magic from 1979, and that's directed by Liliac Sugio, starring Susanna... W.D. Mokhtar, and Teddy Purba. And it's about a young woman who is believed to have used magic to sabotage her former lover's wedding. And in response, they throw her off a cliff. <laughs> she survives this, <laughs> however, and is taken in by a hermit who helps her with her dark magic skills to exact revenge on her tormentors. I kick off my list with this one because it is archetypal for Mondo Macabro. A lot of their key elements are here. It's visually inventive. It comes from a region often overlooked by the movie going public at large, in this case Indonesia. Local folklore and cultural components are key. It's fantastic in the true sense of the word. The ingenuity with practical effects, it's just eye-popping. And the whole is more than the bonkers sum of its parts. The filmmakers' canny creative abilities and their willingness to push boundaries, it propels this into territory beyond what you're used to. But once you're there, you're home. If you don't like this, then Mondo Macabro is probably just not for you. What's your number four?
0: I think this one also is archetypal, at least in the way that I think of Mondo, and that's Lady Terminator, or its Indonesian title, Revenge of the South Sea Queen, from 1988. Directed by H. Chut Jalil, with Barbara Ann Constable, Christopher J. Hart, and Claudia Angelique Rademacher. We've got an anthropologist named Tanya investigating the titular Queen of the South Sea, who then takes control of her body, leading her on a murderous rampage. It's bonkers. Bananas. Insane. And to me, what Mondo does best.
1: This is one that I could have just as easily put on my list too, but when I knew you were doing it, I left it off. But this was the film that was my introduction to Mondo Macabro.
0: I think of it as that... At least to me, international oddity that was clearly the vision of someone who was then astonishingly able to realize that vision.
1: Well, my number four is Mill of the Stone Women, and that's from 1960, directed by Giorgio Ferroni and starring Pierre Brice and Sheila Gobble.
0: I think this was the first Mondo title you showed me.
1: I think you're right. It's sort of really in your wheelhouse, I thought, was the first thing when I was recommending it to you. It's kind of a landmark because it's the first Italian horror film shot in color. It's about a writer who travels to a small town outside of Rotterdam to research a story about a piece of art slash Ripley's Believe It or Not type attraction, The Carousel of the Stone Women. And I like this one, and I recommended it to you because I know what you like, too, because it stitches together so many things that we love from Euro horror traditions into this really haunting mood piece. There's some Bava-esque gothicness. It has a little of the feel of a Hammer Films costume period piece. There are echoes of eyes without a face, with this mad doctor trying to come up with a homicidal solution to his daughter's health woes. And like any good wax museum worth the price of entry, The doctor is not about to let those bodies go to waste when he can turn them into exhibits. Again, just a lot of great images and a really nice, unique setting with the windmills and canals instead of the standard-issue dusty old castle. How about your number three?
0: Well, this one, I think we're starting to get into a little bit more serious territory or playing it a little more straight. And I chose Aswang from 1994, directed by Rye Martin and Barry Polterman, with Norman Moses, Tina Ona, Poxtellis, and John Kishline. It's pretty fascinating. It's about Filipino folklore. The Aswang is a mystical creature that feeds on the unborn. And that's going to play a big part in this story. We have a desperate pregnant woman who agrees to an odd pact to play wife to a wealthy man who lives with his mother. She doesn't know that she's about to be providing Food for the Aswang. This one has real suspense and dread, and there's a lot of gore, but with an underlying black humor that I really appreciate. I remember just really enjoying this.
1: Yeah, that's a great choice. I think that's one of the most underrated titles in the entire collection. My number three takes it back to a director that you've already brought up, and this title is Mystics in Bali from 1981. Directed again by H. Juch Jalil and starring Alona Agatha Bastian, Yos Santo, Sophia W.D., and W.D. Mokhtar is back from The Queen of Black Magic. It's about a woman who travels to Bali to research a book and who is duped by a witch who transforms her into this vampiric spirit that is just a flying head with its internal organs dangling from its neck. <laughs> Best pitch meeting ever. We're back to indonesia again and this one just doubles down on everything that was great about the queen of black magic it just pushes all of that into the red the practical effects take the exploding body parts of the queen of black magic and it just adds more gelatinous and hairy parts the folklore gets more specific with the introduction of this penangalan entity everything just gets turned up to 11. flying heads go on rampages and perform abortions People transform into pigs and snakes and occasionally vomit mice. There are electrocutions and energy bolts. It has everything. It is utter madness. I can truly say you have never seen anything like it. Home stretch here. How about your number two?
0: The next on my list you've mentioned already, and I picked Alucarda mm. from 1977, directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma with Tina Romero playing Alucarda. Now, the story might be based in part on the 1872 novella Carmilla, but it goes in a different direction. We've got two teenage orphan girls living in a Catholic convent who unleash a demonic force and become possessed by Satan. We've got Satanism here, murder, possession again, exorcism, orgies, lesbianism, and much, much more in this religious setting. The visual element that struck me the most, I remember us talking about this, it's the costuming for the nuns. It's particularly inspired. It seems to be sort of an ombre of menstrual blood. It's astounding to see.
1: Well, my number two acts as sort of a counterpart to yours. And again, when I heard you say you were putting this on your list, I kind of chose this to go in tandem with that because either Alucard or this choice of mine are way at the top of my list. And in this case, my number two is Don't Deliver Us From Evil from 1971. That's directed by Joel Seria and starring Jean Goupil and Catherine Wagner. And it's about two young French schoolgirls with too much time on their hands who decide to devote themselves to doing evil. You could definitely file this under the same broad heading as Alucarda with regard to adolescent girls that don't exactly bring out the best in each other. It's actually inspired by the Parker Hume murder case that was the basis for Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, which is great, but plays things obviously a little straighter and a little safer than this does. They start with petty infractions and then work their way up to a black mass and murder. And then a finale that you just have to see to believe. I don't want to spoil it, but I will say I remember how much I was taken aback by that ending the first time I experienced it. It's not over the top in the same way as the Indonesian films I mentioned, but it's what lurks underneath this one that really gets you. It's that same thing as in In Cold Blood where on their own, it never comes to this, but together, it's an alchemy that can't be stopped. Instead of being presented in that stark monochrome like in Cold Blood, here it's all sun-dappled, hazy, 70s seduction with girls who are too smart for their own good giggling while they lead everyone, including themselves, into a trap that they cannot escape. Okay, the big finish. What do you have for your number one choice?
0: This is our shared number one, no question, easy decision. We both picked Symptoms from 1974, directed by José Ramón Larraz with Angela Pleasance, Peter Vaughn, and Lorna Heilbronn. It's about a woman who goes to stay with a friend at her friend's remote English manor, and all is not as it seems. And this seems like Maybe an odd but perfect choice for Mondo because thank you to them for rescuing it. The original prints were missing for many years. It was last shown on British television in 1983. So without them, would we have this film? It looks amazing. Angela Pleasants, whom I've always loved, I don't think was ever better or given a better showcase for her range.
1: Yeah, I hate to not get to have one more film to talk about on these lists. But this is one that we love so much that we knew immediately when we started putting this together that it was going to be number one for both of us. I think that this one belongs in the conversation with Polanski's Repulsion.
0: Absolutely.
1: In fact, I think I'm going to say I like this one a little bit better. This one makes me more sad overall. And with Repulsion, there's that slight undertone that I don't like that hints that Catherine Deneuve deserved that a little bit. I can't quite put my finger on what makes me feel that way, but I sense it and I don't like it. With symptoms, though, I don't feel that at all, and I chalk that up to two things. One, Larazza's ability to make the setting comfortable, thereby making her breakdown almost ironic and even more painful, as if nothing possibly could have given her any relief. And two, Angela Pleasance's performance, like you said. I put it above Deneuve in Repulsion. I put it above S.E. Davis in The Babadook. The only thing I think I don't put it above is Jenna Rollins and A Woman Under the Influence, and that's because you're talking about one of the greatest breakdown performances of all time there. Pleasance gets close to that. This is just a massively underrated film. So there's our top five each, and I know this part is going to appeal to you. Not only did you get to talk about five other movies, but I'm going to ask you for a further recommendation as well.
0: All right. So going back to those touchstones I mentioned, I chose Hulk from 2003, directed by Ang Lee, with Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly, Sam Elliott, Josh Lucas, and Nick Nolte. This is a Hulk origin story. We see Bruce Banner get that dose of gamma radiation in the lab, which causes him to turn into a huge green monster whenever he is stressed or angry. The military wants to kill him, and his biological father wants to use him. So again, The Incredible Hulk was a big deal for me growing up. I still have my Hulk lunch tray. The character really spoke to me. And I was attracted but also repelled by this prospect of having no roots and living constantly on the edge. So I got very excited that I was going to be able to see this, hoping it was going to be a great adaptation of this character that I love so much. And I think to this day, I like this a whole lot more than most people. Maybe it's the realistic skin and body effects. Maybe it's extra quiet and broody. Maybe it's just weirder in a different way and doesn't smirk. Anyway, I'm a fan of this.
1: Well, my recommendation this time is going to be for a film called Remake, Remix, Rip Off from 2014. And that's directed by Kaya, and it's a documentary about copy culture and Turkish exploitation cinema of the 60s and 70s. I saw both Tarkan and this at Fantastic Fest in a special programming block they did devoted to Turkish cinema. And it's super fun. If you've seen Not Quite Hollywood, that documentary about Australian exploitation films, you sort of know what you're in for. This is the Turkish analog to that. There's lots of incredible clips, some really fun talking head interviews with guys who are walking a thin line between accurately documenting what they went through and then puffing up their own mythology at the same time. There are behind the scenes stories of utter insanity with stunts and every other thing. It's very illuminating. After you watch Tarkhan or even before, watch this and you'll understand everything a whole lot better.
0: So once again, that's two great recommendations, Hulk and Remake Remix Ripoff.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 120. First and foremost, this time around, I would like to thank our friend Matt Gasteyer for increasing his Patreon support of us. Thanks, Matt. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Leanne Kubich, Travis Trudell, the fine gentleman at on Film, Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films Podcast, and the folks at Criterion Cast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere that you get your podcasts, you can find us. We'd like to say a special thanks to Michael Muck Erdley for leaving us a very nice review this time around. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.